Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter Podcast, I'll be interviewing Trisha G. Based in Seville, Trisha is a software engineer, writer, and popular speaker, and Java advocacy lead at JetBrains, which makes some of the most popular tools used by software developers and project managers. You can follow her on Twitter at Trisha underscore G, and check out her website at TrishaG.com. Trisha is the author of the LeanPub books, What to Look For in a Code Review, Effective Tips for Reviewing Code, and most recently, along with her co-author, Helen Scott, Getting to Know IntelliJ Idea, Level Up Your IntelliJ Idea Knowledge so that you can focus on doing what you do best. In the book, Trisha and Helen use a combination of tutorials and a question and answers approach to help you find ways to use the IntelliJ IDEA integrated software development environment that enables you to work comfortably and productively as a software, a, pre- a professional software developer. In this interview, we're going to talk about Trisha's background and career, professional interests, her books, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about her experience as a writer and author. So thank you very much, Trisha, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Oh, thank you for inviting me. This is going to be fun, I hope. <laughs> I hope so too. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you found your way into the career you've had. Um, okay, how long do we have? <laughs> <laughs> um, these sometimes go feature length, believe it or not, yeah. um, but <laughs> as long as you like, I'll, really. I'll try and give the short version. Um, so I'm I, a long time ago, I was born in England. Um, I, I, so I, people often ask me where I'm from because I live in Seville, I'm clearly not Spanish. Uh, and then people sort of say, where are you from? And sometimes I think I'm Australian and I'm like, no, I'm from England. I was born in the north of England and then um, I grew up there for, uh, for like 10 years and then I went down t- to the south of England um, and I was there for like 10 years and I've, I went to university in Brighton, I lived in London, I lived in New York and now I live in, in Spain, which is my accent, which is why my accent is a little bit all over the place. Like, where are you from? Uh, here, currently. Um, and so I'm, I'm a software engineer, as you said, and a, and a speaker. I did computer science at university. That's actually where I met Helen Scott, my co-author. Um, and I didn't really originally plan to be a programmer because I thought it meant sitting down in front of the computer all day and, and not moving. And I was a very active sort of child um, and, and teen. And I thought programming might be a bit too sedentary, but um, I did computing at university and I really, really liked it. And then I found out you can actually earn quite a lot of money as a programmer. And I thought that I'm on board. This is what I want to do. Um, <clears throat> But in the past, I had also wanted to be a teacher and a journalist and a writer and all these sorts of things. And it meant that over time, my career kind of migrated via development and software and stuff into writing blogs and being active on Twitter and then eventually conference speaking um, and sort of this in this developer advocacy role, which also incorporates a bit of teaching and coaching and um, and networking and these sorts of people skills that developers are supposed to be bad at, but aren't necessarily bad at. Um, and I always, always, always wanted to write a book. Um, and so it's, it's taken me a little while, but that's kind of how I ended up via blogging and, and networking with people at conferences who'd written books and publishers at conferences. And they, they were all like, oh, you can, you know, it's possible to write a book. It's not just something that, you know, these high flying people do. Um, uh, and and that's kind of how I ended up here, really, I guess. Um, I haven't really explained how I ended up in Seville. I ended up in Seville because my boyfriend was Spanish and we met in London. And I was like, you're from Spain. We should probably move to Spain. That sounds like a good idea. So we, we moved to Spain, had a kid, got married and had another kid. That's, that's fantastic. Um, that's so great. That, that, that's funny. You mentioned uh, the Australian thing. That's I used to I used to live in London myself and traveled around Europe a bit. And um, you reminded me of a, a time a friend of mine called me up and he said, I'm on a beach in Spain. You wouldn't believe how remote it is. There's only one Australian here. Um, <laughs> Uh, and uh, but that's just because Australians love to, especially young Australians, love to travel and stuff like that. But anyway, that's the sort of origin of that of that joke. Um, and so yeah, so you studied um, computer science at university. I gather from your your LinkedIn profile that I checked out while researching for the interview. Um, and uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about about the internship that I will not internship, I did, but but the sort of co op as we would we would call it in Canada that you did with Ford. Um, right. Uh, so you did that. You you actually worked for Ford Motor Company during your your undergraduate degree. What was that work like? And was that in New York? No. So that was. Um, so my dad is a teacher. He's a careers teacher. Um, and we. Uh, that's very good having a careers teacher as a dad because he can give you a lot of advice about stuff that you you didn't really know about. So. 
before I went to university, he was sort of saying there's ways where you can work and get your degree at the same time. And given that we didn't have loads of money, that was very appealing to me. And he said, one of the things you can do is you can get an internship or, or sponsorship from an organization. So he showed me a bunch of sponsorship stuff and, and internship stuff. And I, I went for two. One was um, GCHQ, which is like the British government listening organization. Um, and that's over in Cheltenham. And one was uh, Ford, which was in Essex, which is where I lived. And, and so I was living in South End with my parents. Um, I was planning to go to university either in Cambridge or in Brighton. So kind of like um, that part of England-ish. Um, and so a, an internship or sponsored student thing in Essex, sort of in that area, was, was very appealing to me. Um, plus, I like cars. Um, and the deal with the sponsorship, uh, a sponsored student is they – they take you on, they interview you before you even go to university. So like when you're in high school um, and then they give you like a, a stipend for books for the first and second year, not much, like a couple of hundred quid or something, but it meant a lot to me because I had no money. Um, and then you work between your first and second year at university, you work for three months for them on a small placement. And then between second and third year at university, you work for, for 15 months, you do two placements, a seven month placement and an eight month placement um, doing IT stuff. This is for the IT part of Ford. Um, and then if you do well or in, and if you want to, they may give you, give you a graduate offer at the end of that time as well. So I had not planned to do a sandwich course where you do like two years of university, one year in industry and one year um, at university. I had planned to do three years at university, but I did get accepted on this on this internship, the sponsored student thing. And I spoke to the university and I said, is it okay if I, if I do my third year a year late? Um, and they were like, that's absolutely fine. You can kind of work, work for you a year and then come back and still get your degree. Um, and so to me, this seemed a good best of all worlds where I can get a bit of money. Um, I get a bit of real world experience. I can see how my degree kind of integrates with, with the, with the real world. And because this is aimed at students, not graduates, they had like training and programs for you to get skilled up and they knew that you didn't know anything. And then these are short placements designed for like, if you don't really get on with it or aren't that great at that thing that you're doing, that's kind of fine. You just do the placement and then move on to the next thing. So um, it, in retrospect, it, you know, it's one of the best things that happened to my career doing that because I got a taste of working in industry. I actually worked as, um, as a developer. I was doing web development at the time. Um, I worked doing proper development for, for my two main placements. Uh, this is back in like 2000 and I was doing the, uh, I was doing front end development with JavaScript and HTML. Oh, and we were doing ASP as well, actually. Um, and we had to get the, the website looking exactly the same in, not Firefox, in Netscape and Internet Explorer. Um, that's how long ago it was. Um, but it was really good for like, I, I, had chosen not to do the database course during my degree because I was like, I don't care about databases. They seem really boring. And then after my year in industry, I then opted to do the databases course because I was like, oh, this seems very relevant. Um, and all the software engineering stuff that I'd done in first and second year at university, which had seemed very deadly dull and very boring, I also understood that uh, in the real world how the software delivery lifecycle works. And it was all like waterfall back in 2000. And, you know, um, it was quite good to do the, both the degree and the work at the same time. So you, they kind of feed each other and you see the relevance of both of them. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, it's interesting. I didn't, I didn't know that detail that your 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 dad dad uh, was a sort of careers teacher. But um, uh, there's a, a a YouTube video that I found uh, of you from a few years ago uh, talking about careers and like sort of you know the different sort of aspects of careers in in software uh, and stuff like that. You know, like are you trying to do you want to remain a developer your whole career and just sort of get better at technical stuff the whole time? Do you want to move into being a tech lead or eventually a manager and stuff like that? Um, and that and so. I was looking forward to asking you a version of a question that comes up on almost every episode of this podcast because so many of our authors are developers. But if you were starting out now with an intention of having a career in programming, would you do a four-year full university degree in computer science again? I think knowing what I know now and knowing the industry the way I do, I would suggest to someone like me that it's a good thing to do because I'm, I'm very academic and I did very well in, in, um, 
in exams and and that kind of thing. So to me, having the, the structure of the university staff with individual courses where you learn individual staff combined with the real world um, experience of doing that year in industry, there was a nice transition from high school to being a professional developer. Um, you know, it, it kind of helped me when I went back to university for my third year, um, because I didn't want to go back for my third year because in my second year I was earning money and I really liked earning money. It was really good. And I, you know, I, I, I was enjoying my job at that time. I was doing web, de- web development. It was 2000 and, you know, the web was just this huge thing that like no one had really got into much. And it was, you know, turned out that by the time I graduated in 2001, the dot-com crash and everything was kind of like not great. Um, but um, doing... So, yeah, so I nearly didn't finish my third year. I nearly didn't finish the degree, but I did because I only had to do basically six months worth of work, tick the boxes on the exams. And then I have my degree and a year's worth of experience. And that was really, then when I did graduate, I could go out and say, I've got both things. I have the degree that some of these organizations still require from you. And I have a year's worth of working in industry, which most of your other graduates don't have. So it was for me, it was a big differentiator that I could have both of those things and I could do both of them at the same time. And I feel very, very, I was going to say lucky, but I worked very hard to, to get the place at Ford. I feel very fortunate that I did, that I found that opportunity and that, that they offered that to me because it, it really did open those doors. However, I do know a bunch of other, and um, so my cousin is also a Java developer um, and she's, she's a lot younger than me. She's like in her 20s and she's come through a different path. She's come to it a bit more organically. She studied something different at university. She kind of then came into programming um, and and kind of liked it and worked a little bit in industry. I think she did an internship as well, but not the same sort of thing as me. And um, and she has found that doing it organically in place in an organization where she can learn to code with her peers and kind of grow that way has been more valuable than if she'd done a computer science degree. Like just doing the degree for her, I believe, wouldn't have given her the, the motivation that she wouldn't really... Degrees are quite, the stuff you learn in your degree is quite divorced from real programming. You don't learn Git, for example. You don't learn how to work as a team necessarily. You don't understand how the lines of code that you write impacts the business. You don't, even when I was working at Ford and they were constantly telling us like, this is like the numbers for marketing for this month and this is how many cars we sold. And, you know, so you got to see the sort of, um, the financial impact of what we did in, because I worked for the marketing department, you, you kind of got to see the fine, but I didn't really understand any of that because I had no context. But imagine if you only did the degree, you'd be like, uh, none of this has any real world relevance. So for some people doing boot camps or, or, or internships without the degree is a, is a better way to get into computers, into programming. Um, and for some people, doing the degree first and not being distracted by that year out in industry and having to do that change, doing just the degree first, that would be better for them too. So it really is about the fact that we have multiple paths in our industry, I think is very much a great thing. And and I get very irritated by people who say there's one right way. You must have a degree or you must have hands-on experience or you must have been programming since you were nine years old. Like all of that is nonsense. You know, you must want to do it right now and be interested in doing it. And we need to help people get to that point where they're like, oh, this is programming. Oh, I quite like it. And I don't care how you get to that point, but you need to be able to get to that point. Thanks very much for such a great, great uh, nuanced answer. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's funny. Um, you sort of like, you kind of, you gave, you gave, both of the answers that I typically get only one of from, from, right. from people. And then you did this sort of dialectical thing where you're like, you know, brought them both together in a synthesis. And it's like, it's because it, it matters who you are and what your path in life is, right. um, which is so important. Um, uh, and uh, it's important to keep that in mind. Uh, but it is one interesting thing that I, I remember from this, this YouTube video of yours that I watched and um, from something you just said now is that like having a differentiator in your CV is a, a, something I wish you, people didn't have to think about when they were 18 or 19 or 20 or 21, but it actually is. If you have, if you have the, the wherewithal to do so, do something to make yourself stand out. 
Um, yeah. With respect, I'm now speaking in career advice mode, as though as though I you know deserve to be giving any. But you know, but in my experience, it it is incredibly important to have something that that helps you stick out, and it doesn't it doesn't necessarily need to be you know I won I won the piano competition at twelve or something like that. Right. It can be it can actually be coming from an an obscure place. Um, you know, things sure. like, that. like having a story to tell about yourself that showing that you've, you've thought about your your life even and 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 to being able to demonstrate that thoughtfulness in your the, the things you've chosen to do really. What you kind of want, what you want on your CV is so I've done a lot of reviewing of, of CVs and generally developers with like two to five years experience or even less, they their CVs all look the same because they don't you know, they've done two years of Java and one year of Hibernate and a bunch of Spring and they went to university or did a boot camp. And, you know, there's not very much on there. What you have to think about is this person who's reading your CV, you want them to go, oh, you know, oh, I'd love to ask them about that. You know, it, it could be um, a bunch of people I've seen who've done sabbatical, a bit of traveling or or maybe won something or maybe run one of the clubs at university or, or on the side or, um, I mean, I kind of really, in some ways I really hate this idea of like, it has to be hustle culture of you have to do all these things. It's not that. It's like, like you said, whatever it is that's special about you, just make sure it's there on the CV. So someone goes, oh, I'd love to talk to them about that. That sounds really interesting. You don't have to put all your special interests and activities, but even if it's in the personal statement of, you know, I, I came to programming because, you know, I think it's actually a people-focused skill and, and people will be like, oh, no one ever says that. That's kind of interesting, you know. Another feature of this whole conversation that I, I find so fascinating because it's so important is um, often uh, – you know, when you're just sort of reading the odd article about like, you know, education policy and stuff like that, you'll get people saying, um, oh, the guy, you, 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 I mean, it's an easy go to quote, but it's like the graduates coming out of university aren't ready on day one to work in my company. Right. And it's like, well, fuck you. Yeah. Why, why would they be? Asshole? I, uh, that's I so stupid. And I have a very strong opinion about that particular statement. Yes. Well, it's interesting. And I'd like, I, I mean, I'm, it's probably similar to mine since you reacted the way you did, but uh, it's, it, it, I wanted to actually, there's an interesting coincidence. So, um, Someone I, the, the interview we just published last night, um, our latest interview was with Dave Farley. With um, Dave, yeah, my you, boss. Who you, who you worked with at LMAX, which so I'd like to ask you about that, like with, with your career progression and stuff. Uh, and I didn't realize that until I was preparing for this last night. But his answer to that question about like, you know, studying computer science and stuff like that included this comment about how like, now, of course, it would be you know, you want some sense of the the real world to be there in someone's computer science education, but you shouldn't expect someone fresh out of university to be able to be a, a professional programmer any more than you should expect them to be a professional surgeon when they get right. out of medical school. There's going to be time that they're going to do hands-on training with you doing the job. That's the only, they're not going to, there's no magical class they're going to take that teaches them how to be a professional. Uh, you That's have exactly to learn right. that on the job. That's exactly right. You, I, I think that whole opinion of the graduates aren't ready when they come out is a very lazy thinking from our industry. Our industry has a tendency to, to see developers as disposable resources. They want to be able to pick them up, put them in the machine, have them churn out code, and then spit them out when they want to. We are seeing an example of this in some very large technical firm right now, um, who I won't name. But, you know, and this is, this is the thing. They kind of want to hire the best of the best. They want to pay the cheapest of the cheap. They don't want to train anyone up. This is obviously, this is the most extreme version. But generally speaking, the people go, well, I want to be able to pick whoever I want to pick. And I want them to drop them in the team. I want them to deliver. And then I want to not give a crap about them when I don't give a crap about them anymore. And that's not how professions work. Professions work by, and by profession, I mean, you know, professional people, exactly what Dave said. If you take someone who has the, the training, be it a, a university degree or boot camp or doing projects on, their, on the side or whatever, of course they don't know how to work in your organization. Even if you take someone very senior who's got 10 years experience or whatever, that's not very senior, like good senior, 10 years experience or whatever, um, they haven't seen your code before. They haven't worked with your people before. They might not know your business domain. They probably, if you're using something like Jenkins to do your build, they definitely haven't seen your flavor of Jenkins because it's always different everywhere. Of course, you have to learn stuff when you come into the team. And it's absolutely your job to train people up 
to get them to, to be effective in your team. Some of that needs a bit more, some of it needs a bit less, but you have to teach those people how to do that stuff. And us as a profession generally, we can't magically expect somebody else to train up people to be exactly the shape that we want them, be that a university or boot camps or whatever. That's impossible. It's your job. You're the organization, the enterprises, the people who pay the developers. Don't be freaking lazy. You know, you're spending a lot of money on these developers. Don't be lazy about it. It's an investment. Spend, you know, spend the time and the money with them. That's how it works. Yeah, I, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And um, particularly, it becomes. I mean, we're obviously both are passionate about this issue, but you know, it's 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 particularly frustrating when you hear about like you know proper education policy being debated, and people are like. Right. The kids these days that are coming, like I mentioned, coming out of university don't know how to do what we want them to do. So why don't you change your whole education policy so you can pay so the kids themselves can pay for their own job training? And then four years later, when those kids graduate, the world's moved on and they're like, oh, that idea we had from four years ago didn't work out. And now the kids don't know what to do. You failed them. You know, that's exactly just, why this just doesn't make any sense because obviously yeah. education policy moves necessarily slowly, but even if it moved, as you said, as fast as you needed it so that the first years are learning Git, like, as you say, four years time, it's not going to be Git. It's not going to be, it probably will be Java, but you know, it's not, and there's a lot of things it's not going to be. It's not going to, it's definitely not going to be like seven years ago, I was learning Angular and it's definitely not the same flavor of Angular that you're using now. Like, that's not what you learn at university. You learn the fundamentals, you learn some design stuff, you learn a bit about how computers work, you learn the, the stuff that goes in your head so you can start reasoning about all the other stuff that happens. And you learn how to learn, which I think I stole that off Dave, actually. You learn how to learn. You learn how to go and Google stuff to answer the questions. You're not learning how to program in Java. You're learning how to learn how to program. Yeah, and that's exact. That's exactly it. I mean, and whether it's at university or whether it's independent study, of course, that's the most important thing to 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 keep in mind is that you're learning how to. If you're going to be a professional who's going to have a career in something, you have to learn how to learn. It's never going to go away that you're learning, and um, that's 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 the true kind of that's the true skill. Um, yeah, that that, that gets everything's you always changing. Well. I mean, that's that's yeah. the thing that all the all the pro, all the developers are complaining about. It's like, how am I supposed to stay up to speed on everything? It's like, no, you you can't. Just figure out, just learn that the next job you do or in the next six months, the things you're doing are going to be different and you have to roll with those punches and, and learn to, to, to learn the new thing. That's, that's just, that's the way it is. Um, uh, I mentioned you worked for LMAX, which was this um, tra- trading trading platform. Uh, but that that just, I mean, I, I could ask you specifically about that. But um, uh, more generally, though, you've one interesting thing I know from the, the talks you've given and from just looking at your LinkedIn profile that you've done lots of different types of work within kind of software development. Was that something that you were intending to do from the start? No, I just get bored really easily. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, it's a combination of things. Um, Right at the beginning, so I did, I did the, I did the thing with Ford, which included a bunch of small pieces of work, which was very helpful. I decided not to go back to Ford as a graduate, even though they offered it to me, because I was like, I've already sort of done that. I want to do something a little bit different. So I took a role um, doing web development for uh, a not-for-profit organization, actually. Um, and that, But this was in 2001 after the crash and things were a bit like, you know, shaky. And I was like, just give me a job. I don't really care. And I did that for about 10 months. And I basically did kind of what they needed me to do in those 10 months. And they were happy to keep me on doing other bits and pieces, but doing some systems and some doing, doing um, some documentation, actually, which I quite enjoyed. Um but like that wasn't, I wanted to do programming. So I left there and went back to Ford and then Ford had a bunch of different projects. You do project work in Ford, so that's kind of fine. So I think I just got into this habit of, you know, I'm expecting every six to 12 months to, to work on a new project and learn some new stuff. And I kind of developed in my head, like if I haven't, especially in those early days, if I haven't added a new skill to my CV, if I haven't grown in some direction if I haven't learned anything new in the last 12 months in particular probably in back in those days maybe the last three months like I'm not I'm not getting anything out of this role um so so yeah so I did move around a bunch and I was just I was kind of looking for something I did a bunch of really interesting work met a bunch of interesting people and the variety was quite good because that's where I learned how to learn. And I learned that there is no one way to do stuff. And um, when I came out of university, I started doing Java pretty much exclusively. But even um, 
all those jobs were very different types of jobs with different flavors of code and different problems. And that was kind of interesting to me that it's always different. And then once you've solved one problem or released one thing or, or got somewhere, then you kind of want to move on and do something different. You kind of don't really want to stay at the nice, stable, boring stage. You know, you kind of want to move on to the next problem in actual fact. So, so you actually, oh, I should have said this right at the beginning. You introduced me as working at JetBrains, but I was working at JetBrains. And I'm, and I'm now like I'm on a break and I'm looking, I will be looking for my next job next year. And one of the things I'm, I'm looking for is like, I could work somewhere which is have, has everything perfect and, you know, you just kind of slot in and do your thing. But I'm really looking for somewhere where I'm like, oh, is there a problem? Can I fix something? Is there something that needs changing and, and, and moving? And that's kind of, I realized that that's, that's kind of what, what inspires me and, and feeds me. But that's why LMAX was interesting because I worked at LMAX for four years, which at that time was like by far the longest I ever worked anywhere. And we were, we were constantly pairing. So I was constantly learning from these other developers. We were, we had been a startup. We always had new features and new stuff and new business challenges, new things to learn, new things to release. And I was working with Dave Farley and we were doing continuous delivery and we were doing test-driven development and like, there's just so much new stuff that we were just learning all the time. And I stayed there for four years. And then with JetBrains, I ended up being there for seven years because as a developer advocate, there's always like new versions of Java and new audiences or new media and new things I want to do or new people I'm going to work with. And so that was where I ended up settling down. So settling down. But still, the, the drive is always like, give me something new. Give me something. I, I sort of, Now I sort of see it as a slight dysfunction. I realize like it's just a, 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 I just need stimulation and it needs to be this variety. And I'm just not that sort of person who's going to sit down in my cube all day and just do what you're told. I mean, I have done that. And I was so bored. I was so bored. And I actually went to a therapist and said, look, I have a really nicely paying job that I have to do very little for. And it's very easy. I need you to fix me so that I stay in this job and keep the money and feel happy about it. And after about three sessions of therapy, I was like, oh, yeah, no, I'm never going to be happy. <laughs> this is not, you can't make me happy doing this. This is not what I do. And that's when I took the job at LMAX, actually. That's when I started working at LMAX. So it turned out happily for everybody, really. Yeah, thanks very much for that. Um, it's uh, I apologize. I actually I actually had a note to ask you about whether you were still at at JetBrains or not uh, because of uh, something I read in the introduction to your to your to the book. Um, I think in your in your profile where it's like, oh, is this is this still a current job? Um, uh, so thanks. Yeah, for no, it, clarifying that. It, like everyone still thinks I'm a JetBrains because I I left in December, but I, my Twitter is still full of intelligent idea and JetBrains stuff because that's still that's what the book is about. So, um, like it's it's yeah, it's almost like I never left. <laughs> Um, and you mentioned uh, working in a working in a cube or a cubicle, um, uh, but you you went remote quite a while ago, didn't you? Yeah, so we moved to Spain in 2013. Um, at the time, I was working for MongoDB as a developer advocate. Um, they had an office in London. I was working in London, but I was working like three or four days a week in in our apartment. And and I was like, why are we paying London rents to work remotely? <laughs> Because at that time, then I had like my my lovely boyfriend who I was in love with. And I was like, well, we're going to move together and, and maybe have kids. So like, I'm not going to and stay paying loads of money in a pokey apartment in the center of London. We should go to Spain. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so I moved to Spain. I asked Mongo first, like, is it okay if I move to Spain and work remotely? They're like, yeah, fine. Because the main person you're working with is in the States anyway. Makes no difference to them. Um, and so I ended up, working remotely for MongoDB for about a year. And then there came a point where I was like, oh, but talking about variety and the fact that I like change and movement, oh, but now I have to stay here forever because I will never be able to get a new job working remotely from Seville, paying the sort of salary that I would quite like to earn. As you can see, money pays a, is a very key theme in, in my life. It comes from growing up poor, I think. I'm like, I really need money. Um, so I was like, oh, I'm, I'm kind of stuck now because no one else is going to hire me to work remotely full time from Spain. Uh, and then Hadi, who was working at, who still works at JetBrains, Hadi was working at JetBrains and I met him at a bunch of conferences. He saw me presenting live, giving live demos on how to use MongoDB, but with an IntelliJ idea. And he was like, hey, you do these live demos for IntelliJ idea. Why not just come and do them for us? And I was like, oh, there must be a catch to this because this is 
the IntelliJ stuff and the Java stuff was more interesting to me than the MongoDB stuff. And I, I don't want to say that to put MongoDB down, but like I'm a developer at heart and the database, I really enjoyed my two years at MongoDB and I learned a lot, but it's a database. And as a developer, I'm like, I just want my database to store the data. I don't want to worry about it. And when I'm doing developer advocacy, I want to talk to developers about like code and developer stuff. Um, and so when Addy said, come and talk about code and developer stuff and IntelliJ IDEA um, and carry on working, live where you live and working remotely. I, I literally, I took about four months to decide that because I'm like, this is too good to be true. This can't be the right thing. Um, and then I ended up joining and, and yeah, working remotely from here for the, well, for seven years. And now this is the, the eighth year. If you can't, well, I'm not working there anymore, but yeah. So I'm really looking forward to asking you about IntelliJ IDEA and your book. Um, uh, but just before that, there's two things I wanted to, to ask you about. Um, the first is a totally selfish thing, that just because it's come up on the podcast before. Uh, but I lived in London for a few kind of stages of my life in various different neighborhoods. I lived in Balham and Golders Green and near Angel and in Chelsea for a summer and stuff like that. Uh, where did you live when you lived in London? Um, yeah, all over the place, like lots yeah. of people do. I lived in I lived in S Islington, so yeah, not far from Angel, between Angel and King's Cross. Yeah, um, I lived for a bit. I lived um, the 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 flat that I bought was at Earl's Court between Earl's Court and High Street Kensington, and that was like that was like my favourite zone. Um, it was just it's kind of West London actually. So Elmax was based in West London, so that it turned out to be convenient for me. But like most of the most of the work in London is in the city, so it's like the wrong end of the city. But I just I just really love the vibe there. So I lived there. I lived in Shepherd's Bush, which is even closer to where Elmax was. Um, I lived in Hanger Lane, like way out um, west. Uh, I take the Central Line all the way from Hanger Lane all the way to Liverpool Street when I was working in the city, and it was just like you know an hour of your life you never get back. Um, I lived in New Cross as well for about three months. Um, yeah, I lived in two places in Kensington actually. So my 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 spiritual home in London is Kensington, and I know this does tie back to the yes, you do like money, don't you? But it's nice, <laughs> you know. It's kind of leafy and green, and I, you know, I used to read a lot of Regency romances, which aren't based in Kensington. They're based in in. Um, Oh my god, it's just totally slipped my mind in Mayfair and places like that. But like, clearly, I can't afford to live in Mayfair. But like Kensington, it's you know, lovely, beautiful, leafy, white, fantastic. Yeah, that's that's so great. You're reminding me. I was a Northern Line person uh, right. for my for my commuting time uh, before before I so I was working in the city, and that's why I moved to sort of um, uh, City Road, right right near Angel Station. So I was like a 15 right. minute walk from the city. That's near where like, I was. Yeah. yeah, yeah, just a perfect kind of solution to that to that problem. But like. For anyone who's gone through it, the sort of London commuting years are hours you'll never get back. Um, uh, and it's, um, it's, I think for me, like a kind of proper regret that I didn't just sort of choose where to live differently. Right. Uh, I just took it for granted that commuting was going to be part of my life. And I probably could have, I mean, I would have gladly lived in a smaller, crappier place rather than spend an hour each way. Yeah. You know, the only the only good thing packed, that I think... literally packed in with other people with like no room to like like t like right up next to other people something kind of hard to believe now but you yeah know. no it's just, yeah you, you look at that now and just go oh my god how unhygienic um, yeah. I, I, used to, <laughs> I used to live before that I used to live in South End in Essex and so there's a there's an overground train that goes from South End almost directly into Fenchurch Street. And you could usually get a seat. Well, we used to get, catch the train at like 20 past six in the morning. Now I think about it. But you'd usually get a seat. Um, and the funny thing about that was that was much further outside of London. But my commute was the same as if I'd been inside London. Um, because, you know, it was a 40-minute train plus another 20, 30 minutes on, on, on the subway, on the tube, wherever you want to go. You're still doing like an hour and a bit an hour and a half something like that but you get to sit down and you get to, I used to I read so much I read so many books I used to read um on the way into work I would always read uh like a a, a work type book so that's when I discovered Joel um Joel on spot Joel on software Joel Spolsky Joel on software I was reading um Michael Lopp I was reading um I think I was probably reading Martin Fowler and you know a lot of these sorts of things and I would read those on the way in on the way back I was exhausted so I just read my novel like whatever trash I was like reading but um I read a lot and that's one thing I miss about commuting is having time where you're like I literally and of course this is uh, that was before smartphones that's how old I am 
So you literally can't do anything else. You can just read. There's nothing else to distract you. Yeah. The, uh, if, if, but as you say, if you've got a seat, because I mean, I remember my, my Northern line commutes, like I, I learned how to get small books because yeah. sometimes you had to read like this, you lit- yes. literally had to read like that. Um, mm. uh, and you learned why sort of the tabloid format is so useful, um, for example. Yeah. And, um, uh, but anyway, that's, that's all sort of very in the weeds kind of, you know, London reflections and stuff like that. So apologies to listeners, but you know, these, it is, it is sort of interesting to reflect on this, especially because of a lot of it seems very, uh, anachronistic suddenly became very anachronistic. Um, yeah. but the second thing I wanted to talk to you about before we got onto your book was, um, you got into public speaking at a certain point and writing mm-hmm. and writing and things like that. Was this a sort of conscious decision that you made that like, you know, you know what, I want to get into like being a sort of like public figure to some extent? Yeah, I mean, I wanted to do the writing. I remembered, um, I always read, I always read a lot. Like like I was just saying, some of those books I read were very inspiring because I realized that technical books don't have to be written like technical books. They can be written conversationally. Um, and I also, I used to read a lot of, no- I still read a lot of novels. This year I've met my Goodreads reading challenge already. And most of that is just like novels and science fiction and stuff. Um, so I always loved reading and that made me always want to write. And as a kid, I used to write a lot of stories. So I was like writing and reading. And I started blogging. I'm not going to use the blogging. I, I, was, I had a journal, a live journal, since about 2004, maybe earlier, actually. No, because I had my terrible job. Don't say it's a terrible job. Don't say what year it is, because then they'll be able to know which one it was. I was not terribly excited in the early noughties with some of the stuff I was doing. So I, I had live journal. I was using that to like learn to write, basically. So I've been wanting to do the writing side of stuff for about 20 years, really. And that's been on and off originally, like live journal, just with friends. And then I started a technical blog after I'd read some Joel and Spolsky stuff, Joel Spolsky, Joel on software or Joel Spolsky. Um, and so that was always there. And then I kind of wanted to write a book because like mostly to tick that off because I want to write a book. That sounds cool. Let's write a book. Um, and then I started doing more blogging when I was at LMAX um, and encouraging other people to blog. And we at LMAX, so I left LMAX very briefly to go and work for ThoughtWorks for about three and a half minutes. And then um, Dave uh, Dave and the other Dave, Dave Clark and Dave Farley and Martin Thompson kind of came back to me and said, like, do you, do you want to come? You went to ThoughtWorks because, right, this is not a very coherent story. I went to a conference in about 2006. I went to QCon, uh, QCon London. And it was like the first or second year that they run QCon London. And I was working for a consulting firm at the time. I was working for one of the big banks. And I went to this conference and I saw some guy called Dan North, who turned out to be very like famous, um, and a bunch of other people from ThoughtWorks. Um, and like... I saw a bunch of people who, I don't know if they were famous then, but they became quite famous. The person who invented Selenium and all these people, and they got up and they spoke about the stuff that they did. They spoke about automated testing. I was working in a bank where we had no unit tests, none whatsoever. Like, and we we had three-hour deploy times. And, you know, we had these big release cycles. And I was at a conference where they're talking about behavior-driven development and automated testing and Selenium for driving the UI for your testing. And I then I, I discovered a lot more about Agile. I'd already heard about Agile before, but I, I heard lots more about Agile and different ways to work and pair programming. And I saw my colleague in the organization I was working for, but who didn't work for the bank, Simon Brown, who is known to LeanPub. I saw him, he was running the Java track at QCon London. Um, and I'm like, oh, right, that's a guy I know. I go to the pub with, I speak to him, he's a friend of mine, and he's actually running this track and speaking at a conference. It must be something that real humans do, you know, not just these people who write books. Um, so I had that in my head in like 2006. And then when I was at LMAX, and this would have been 2011 when I came back to LMAX, they were like, we want to do more it wasn't called advocacy, like evangelism and outreach. And we're a financial exchange, which is based in West London, which is a bit weird. Everyone else is in the city. We need to be able to hire good people. And we also need people to know about our exchange because, you know, we need people trading on this exchange. So one of the ways we can do that is, is by this evangelism thing. And I was like, oh, that sounds interesting to me because I had gone to ThoughtWorks 
because that opportunity came up and I'd seen that they were doing blog posts and conferences and stuff years ago. And I went there thinking I'd be able to do that. And then I got there and they they put me working as a consultant in a bank. And I was like, I've already done this. <laughs> this is what I was doing when I saw ThoughtWorks people speaking at conferences and writing blog posts. And this is not where I want to be. And so LMAX said, come back for us. I come back and work for us and do like blog posts and, and, and conference speaking and stuff. So I was like, okay, all right, let's do that. LMAX, I know LMAX, I know the staff, and I want to do this advocacy stuff. So then I started writing blog posts for, for LMAX. I started helping to coordinate the, the advocacy efforts in terms of like, Dave was already speaking at conferences a little bit. Martin was starting to speak at conferences. Um, and they, you know, we were applying to various awards for technologies. We were open sourcing our disruptor um, and we were writing this white paper about the disruptor and how all of that stuff worked. And so I was kind of involved in all of those activities. Like I was definitely not like the hardcore techie person, but I was the one who was interested in the communication side of that whilst also still being technical. And that's where I found like what my sweet spot is like, I'm not Dave Farley or Martin Thompson. And Martin Thompson knows so much. He's so smart. Um, and Dave knows a lot and has loads of experience and is great at communicating. And I'm not those guys. I've got, I've got my own thing, which is I've worked at a lot of these different places and a lot of these different jobs. And I know what it's like to be that developer doing a, I'm not going to say boring job, but an ordinary job, just going and reading stuff, but I don't know what to do to make my life better. And I can talk to that developer because I've been that developer. Um, and then I can take the stuff that Martin says about cash lines and cash misses and ring buffers and try and speak to that developer about how this is relevant to them and how their lives could maybe be better if they did something different. Um, and so that, and then it all kind of spiraled from there, basically, like um, towards the end of those, those last two years, um, uh, you know, Dave and Martin were speaking at conferences. Martin ended up, speaking at Java One, and I got a ticket to Java One because we won the Duke's, prize, Duke's Choice Prize for the Disruptor, um, and then we got a ticket, and they gave it to me because I'd been doing a lot of the coordinating of all this at this outreach. And I was like, this is very exciting, we're in San Francisco. And then Martin said, do you want to come and co-present with me on the talk about the Disruptor? And I was like, well, that sounds terrifying. Uh, I should probably do that. Um, so I co-presented with him and then that once you've got that under your belt, then just your whole world opens up and, oh, I missed out a step. See, I haven't told this story for ages. While I was at ThoughtWorks in the tiny bit in the middle, I met Martin Fowler and I was complaining about the lack of women speakers at these conferences. And he was like, I don't disagree because Martin's big on, on diversity and, and particularly like, you know, pushing forward women and stuff. He said, I don't disagree but you're the one in the position to do something about that because you're a technical woman who could speak at conferences. And I was like, no, I can't. I'm just a developer. I'm not a conference speaker. But he planted that thought in my mind of, no, it's just you. You can do that. You know, we've all been doing it. Yet someone has to start somewhere. So when Martin said, do you want to come? And Martin Thompson said, they're all called Dave or Martin in the story. <laughs> um, when Martin Thompson said, do you want to come co-present with me? I was like, this is, this is it. This is the chance. You don't say I'm not ready. You say, okay, well, I'm going to need your help, but let's do it. And um, actually, this is sort of interesting because it, it is such a sort of, it's something that a lot of people sort of aspire to or would like to do, but uh, getting into the sort of details of how you actually did it is actually sort of often left out of the story. So when you were sort so there you were, you were going to be giving your big talk. Did you do any public speaking training? Did you read any books about that? Did you like, get right. up, did you get, get, get your your, your prepared outfit on and practice beforehand, like looking in the right. mirror or in front of people? Did you do anything like that? Yeah. So that's actually a really good question because yes, you're right. The way that I tell that story makes it sound like you can just ask any developer to get up on stage at Java one and give a talk because you know, it's not that hard. Um, I, at Ford, because I was on the graduate program, they had given us public speaking skills in order to pass things like, and so we'd been on a course, we were on, there was a couple of graduate courses I was on. In order to, to pass, to get the graduate role, um, you had to give a presentation to management. Um, so they coached us in that way back in, in this in the student program. Um, I had also, because I'd been doing web development, and a bunch of front end stuff in the early part of my career, a lot of what I did was 
even though I was usually the very junior member of the team, um, they would usually bring me out to talk to stakeholders or customers or users to demonstrate the product and sort of say, this is how it's going to work. This is a prototype. You know, I've been thinking about this. So I already sort of started to learn those talking to people about technical things, skills at, at Ford. So that was like 10 years earlier. Now I think about it. Um I also, in 2011, around about that time, I, I did go on a course called Impact, which was about um, it was about making impact with people. And some of that was about meeting people one-on-one because I was always very shy about and I was trying to, I was trying to find a boyfriend back in like 2010, 2011. And like, how am I supposed to like meet people and make small talk with them because I'm just a geeky developer. I don't know how to do that. This Impact course was about that, but it was also about presentation skills which is interesting because I had never really thought about those two things together because like presenting is standing up on stage and presenting, making small talk is like trying to be me. And the impact course was like, no, 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 those these are the same thing. They're just different ends of the spectrum. And the whole point is just be you, recognize your strengths and put your best you forward and bring your energy with you. Um, so I had, I had done all of that. Um, so it is very easy for me to say, well, you know, just get up on stage and do it. I had done a bunch of them. I read presentation patterns, which, by the way, if you're a junior speaker, like reading presentation patterns is absolutely terrifying because you're like, there's so much stuff to learn. And, and it's not like that. Just pick one at a time. Just do one thing at a time and then grow and evolve over time. Iterate the same as anything else in programming. So, yeah, you do have to prep. You do have to read. And, and being coached with a by a human being is very valuable because they can tell you like the first time the first training I had at Ford as a, as a graduate or undergraduate I walked up to the stage and gave my like two minute spiel this is in a friendly group a very small group and the feedback afterwards was you have to smile you can't just walk up there all grumpy and I was like I wasn't grumpy like no you were nervous and and that makes you very closed in and that makes you look very unapproachable. So you have to make eye contact and, and, and smile. And you don't get that by reading books. You need someone to say, this is something that's important for you to work on. That's a really, really interesting uh, advice there. I haven't, I have never heard the, um, the line about it being the same, like it's just a spectrum um, from kind of professional small talk to professional speaking on a stage, but it makes total sense. Um, and, uh, and, you know, that idea of like smiling and looking at people and engaging with them is, you know, it's, it's about, it's about other people. It's actually not, you know, right. it's, it's, it's it, the, the, the sort of, I don't know the kind of like, not that I'm an expert on it, but like the kind of weird paradox of it is that you're the one on stage, but you're, and everybody's looking at you, but it's all about them. Right. Yes. If you can and keep if you can keep that in mind, that probably really helps you do what you're there to do. Yeah. When I'm coaching speakers, the 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 number one thing I tell them is that the audience is on your side. They don't want you to fail because it's uncomfortable for them. Watching someone give a live demo that falls over, watching someone who's really nervous, watching someone who doesn't doesn't feel comfortable on stage makes the audience feel uncomfortable. So they they're with you. They want you to have fun. They want you to do well. They want you to present the stuff that you're on stage to present. You know, then no one's looking at you. If there is someone on stage who's looking on you or picking at you, that you, that's not the person you care about. Like the audience is there willing you to do a good job and they don't need to go away with their mind blown. All they want is like one new thing they didn't know before. Uh, you just gave me the absolutely perfect podcast guest segue because um, we wanted to, we, of course, we're here to talk about your book um, uh, about IntelliJ Idea, but you just mentioned doing a demo that falls apart and that the people are there on your side. And actually there was a, a video I watched preparing for this that you did years ago uh, where basically that exactly happened um, uh, over and over again. Um, right. And I remember thinking explicitly like, but people were with you, you know, they were yeah. and, and not, not, in, not in a patronizing way. Like they were like, no. they were laughing along with you as like, you're like, Oh my God, I can't believe it. My mouse doesn't work. Yeah. There's a problem and, with my surface tablet and I set this damn thing up and it didn't work. And, but, but like people were with you and you were partly because they were there on your side, but you were teaching them something, um, which is something yeah. that you do, you do in your book. So I was wondering if you could talk about what IntelliJ idea, as you've done so many times, but you know, <laughs> what is IntelliJ idea? Um, imagine you're talking to a non-programmer. What is, right. what is this thing and how does it help people do things better? 
Right. Um, and I do, I do talk to non-programmers quite a lot because all my friends here in Seville are not programmers. Um, so I often say that IntelliJ IDEA is like the Microsoft Word if you're writing Java. So it's the IDE is your word processor. So the, if you know how to use Word properly, like you can open Word and write whatever you want. That's absolutely fine. Um, but, and I actually have a, I have a qualification as well in, in IT, which means actually understanding how Word works. If you understand, you don't have to go as far as macros. If you understand how hanging, to, hanging indents work and, you know, how to resize stuff, you know, you can get your Word document the way you want it and quickly. And the first thing you learn, of course, is command C, command V, whether it's Word or IntelliJ IDEA, right? And IntelliJ IDEA is the same thing. It's just that it's your tool for writing Java. And of course, you can just make the whole thing get out of your way and just write Java in, in the text editor and compile it and run it. And that's the most basic way to use IntelliJ IDEA. But if you really want to, I don't want to say speed yourself up because not everyone wants to speed up the typing because the, the, the thing about programming is the typing is not the bottleneck. And I stole that from Dave Farley as well. The typing is not the bottleneck. That's not, that's not what slows you down. It is the thinking that slows you down. You have to think about what does the code do? What do I want it to do? Where's the best place to put that? How do I write that? How do I ensure that it's doing what I think it's doing? Where well, I would write an automated test. Now, IntelliJ IDEA can help you do all that stuff. It can help you navigate your code so that you can read it and figure out what it's doing and how things are laid out. IntelliJ IDEA can allow you to, it can write some of the easy code for you if you know how to use it. It's got code completion and live templates for filling out all the, the boring ifs or the fors or the whatever. It can take care of a lot of that language stuff for you. It can generate new classes like test classes if you want. And it won't generate the tests for you because that's terrible practice anyway. But you don't have to worry about like file, new, and then write every single line of code. It will just generate you a working structure of a class. And then all you have to think about is, what do I want this test to do? Not how do I create a new test? How do I add a new method? How do I call it? You don't think about that. You just say, do you want a new one of these? And then I want it to do this. So the idea behind the book is teaching developers um, how to work with IntelliJ IDEA, how it's going to work with you. So that, yes, you can write your code the way that we were taught how to write it in text editors. But if you learn to to lean on IntelliJ IDEA and let it support you, you stop thinking about all of the, the, the boring stuff and you can, you can focus a lot more on what is the code supposed to do? How do I prove that it's doing what it's supposed to do? I, I really love that comparison to uh, something everyone knows, a Microsoft Word. And because one of the things we all know about it is that it's like, you know, mostly we're using it to sort of write paragraphs, but right. it's, it's, that's kind of like taking a jet engine to the corner store um, right. uh, because it can do so many things. Like, I mean, probably no one uses it anymore, but like mail merge, for example, you know. Right. Like, and I did learn how to do a mail merge and it's yeah, cool. You can, you, you can like, you know. <laughs> You can you can basically for anyone who doesn't know, like basically you can add like a thousand addresses and sort of like print out a thousand letters and like it it'll know, you know, oh, this is a letter and like this is this is a name and an address that I'm looking for and stuff like that. And it reminded me of um Final Draft, for example. I don't know if you've ever used that, but for writing um screenplays, basically, um, there's various concepts that get repeated in screenplays. There's character names, there's scenes. Right. Scenes come in order. There may be there's acts typically, you know, things like that. And so anything where there's a kind of like repeated structure for writing, people can actually build tools for that sort of like know about that. And right. IntelliJ IDEA is like this, but specifically for Java. Yeah. And IntelliJ IDEA is kind of, it's a bit difficult sometimes to really pin it down because the original IDE was just a Java IDE. IntelliJ IDEA community is a Java IDE with some of the other JVM languages like Kotlin, Scala, and Groovy. IntelliJ IDEA Ultimate, which is the one you pay for, community is free. Ultimate, which is the one you pay for, also has other languages. It's got SQL, it's got HTML, it's got a bunch of JavaScript in there. You can write JavaScript code. It's got, um, it has framework support for all the different frameworks as well. So IntelliJ IDEA Community, which is the one we mostly fo we focus on that in the book because it's the free one everyone can use is generally a Java IDE. But if you're using Ultimate, you can basically write 
almost anything in that. Um, there are three principles that you talk about in the book that uh, come up again and again. Um, always green, um, keyboard first. I'm just looking at my notes here and in the flow. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk about always green. So what what does what is that concept for people who might not know? Uh, and and how does this product help programmers stay that way? Always green. Right. So um, where always green is something that that I've been thinking about. A lot of this book is not necessarily like JetBrains law, but like how I think about using the IDE. The always green thing is something I learned working at LMAX. When I came to LMAX, when I coded, I coded in what I thought was a fairly typical way for developers. Like when you when you're writing new code or making a change, you write the stuff in and it's generally not going to compile because it's not ready yet. Um, and so let's say you you decide to add a method or I don't know, changing a name is not a good example, but like you you add some code and you know it just breaks a bunch of stuff everywhere. And then your job is to go around and change everywhere it's broken. That's how you know you've you've added something because you you added something, broke everything, and you fixed it all, and now it's all working. Um, but IntelliJ idea works in a very different way. You can do that with IntelliJ idea by all means, um, but it's it's working in a very different way. You you should be using some of the refactoring tools or the code generation tools to make sure that the stuff that you do is always compiling. So it's always green. When you rename something, you don't just change the name of it. You use the rename function, so it renames it everywhere. And not and it's smart about it. It doesn't just rename it in like, it's not the same as find and replace, which might put it in every text file that you don't want it in. It renames it in every, if you rename a method, it renames it everywhere that calls that method. And it renames it in all the interfaces which use that method. And, and so and with one button, you've made that fix everywhere and you can guarantee that your code is working. Now that's just the refactoring stuff, but there's loads of other stuff. Like I always, I, the first week I worked at, at, at JetBrains and I'd already been using IntelliJ a lot. I learned complete statement, which um, is command shift enter. I want to say my fingers want to do that. Um, and so complete statement is you've kind of mostly typed all of the, the, the line of code that you want, um, but you've put all the important stuff in. If you use a complete statement, it closes off all your parentheses and puts a semicolon on the end. And it's dumb. It's a stupid thing. But like, no, I don't have to think, did I have three parentheses or four parentheses? Oh, I forgot the semicolon again because I was doing Kotlin, which doesn't have semicolons, and Java does. No, you don't do that. Just say complete statement. So while, so I finished thinking about that line. Um, I can be thinking about the next thing I want to do and, and I'm pressing that thing and IntelliJ fixes all of that stuff for me, keeps my code green, it's compiling, running, work. I can, if I want to do, um, if I want to run my tests, I know that my tests will run because everything's compiling. They might not pass, but they will run because it's compiling. One of the problems with doing stuff in an incremental way where you purposefully break stuff and then fix it up is that you can't run your tests because they don't compile. Um, if you keep your code green all the time, obviously this, this relies on you having tests and running the tests. But if you keep your code green all the time, you can run your tests and have high confidence that everything's working. If you keep your code green all the time, IntelliJ IDEA knows more about your code, especially Java, because it's strongly typed. So, you know, it it knows um, that it, when you're when you're searching for stuff, it searches for stuff in a smart way, not in, not in this not in a brute force way. So as long as everything's compiling and its internal model is correct, you get all the benefits of, of the ability to find stuff quickly and change stuff quickly. Thanks for that really great explanation. I love that this sort of like, like kind of smart autocomplete, you know, but like that it's sort of scoped to the kind of programming language that you're writing in. So it kind of knows what you're doing and can take some of that stuff off your, off your mind. So you can <clears throat> pardon me, focus your cognitive load on, on where it should be rather than on the yeah. details. Um, exactly. speak, speaking of details, um, in the last part of the interview, we always like to talk to authors about their writing processes and things like that. And so you and you and Helen co-authored the book. Uh, and I'm curious, how did you how did you manage that? Did you each take a chapter? Did you, you know, take parts of chapters? How did how did you manage that process generally? We did a bit of everything. <laughs> right at the beginning, um, Right at the beginning, we, we kind of came up with the, the table of contents more or less. Obviously, it evolved. We had an idea of what we wanted to cover. Um, and I had, I've got a lot of in-depth knowledge of IntelliJ in my head. Um, Helen had been working with the product for about a year, so she was really up to speed on a whole bunch of stuff to get new users up to speed. So she was taking some of the new user stuff, and I was taking some of the like obscure stuff that's just in my head. Um, 
But it was quite difficult to really motivate ourselves to do that, especially because Helen had already done the new user stuff for, for JetBrains. And I'd already, I, this difficult stuff was difficult. And I couldn't quite bring myself to sit down and do it on my own. So what we ended up doing quite early on, actually, is we set aside two hours a day, most days, I think it's four days of the week, to sit down and pair on it, like pair programming. Um, and so the, I think... So IntelliJ Idea has a feature called Code With Me, which allows you to do remote pairing. Now, Code With Me is new. It came out of the pandemic, obviously. So that must have come in in 2020. We started writing this in, in summer 2020. So I think at the beginning, we were probably using a combination of, of Zoom and some screen sharing. But very early on, IntelliJ Idea came in with, with Code With Me, which meant that we, could, we were writing the book in IntelliJ Idea. We were using ASCII doc, um, and we had an ASCII doc uh, project. Um, IntelliJ Idea supports ASCII doc as well, and has an ASCII doc to plug in. Um, allows you to to write the ASCII doc and have a preview on the side, so you get live feedback straight away of how things are going to look, which is just great. Because um, a lot of the other writing tools I've seen, like you know, you can sort of think in Markdown, but you really want to. Oh, and it's not not Markdown specifically, but you can sort in you you can think in that format to begin with, but you. To me, I'm a very visual person. I want to be able to see it. So having both side by side was really helpful. Um, and then with Code With Me, we both have the project open at the same time. We're both writing in the same document, a bit like Google Docs or something like that. So you're both writing in the same document at the same time. Often, um, we would pick something, pick one of the topics. We'd usually start with, well, whichever topic we felt like, actually, because it's quite difficult, difficult to motivate yourself to, to write, right? So we're like, what do we want to do today? Do we want to do a nice, easy one or do we want to do a meaty one? Are we feeling like it? Um, and then usually Helen would be driving the, the writing process and, and I would be like just splurging my like knowledge crap at her. And she'd be like writing down all the crap that comes out of my mouth. Um, and she would often go away and like tidy that stuff up into something that was actually kind of vaguely readable. Um, and then maybe I might make some notes on some other stuff. But in those early days, like I was really overloaded and Helen had more time. So it was just a lot of me just splurging crap at her. Um, and then later on, by, by the time, by the time this year came around and I was no longer working full time, I had a lot more time. So then I would, I went, I did a lot of this from July onwards, I was doing a lot of the screenshots. And as I was doing the screenshots and, and, and getting the UI in the right place and taking photos, not photos, not with the camera, um, taking the screenshots, I could read through the text and go, oh, that's not quite right. Or I don't really want to say it that way. And so I was tuning that a little bit. Some of the bits that I knew really well, like the the version control chapter which was about 35 pages of version control i just like i just sat down and i just did it do it all by myself and do it on my own and i'm just gonna get i've got to talk about this i've got to talk about this i've got to talk about this um and then i gave that to helen to review it and make that like less well actually when you when i'm writing i'm kind of fine but i needed her to look at it and make sure it was not it was at the right level because you know again it's all the stuff that's in my head and, and she can say something like, a new user is not going to know what this thing is. I'm like, oh, okay, fine. Um, so we did a lot of that. And then um, and when we, when we were doing that final pass where we kind of like got a lot of the, the raw content down, either because I kind of blurred it at her or splurged it on the keyboard or she'd written her stuff as well. There was a lot of stuff that she wrote from her knowledge. Then um, we went through this final, well, not really final pass. With book writing, there's about 35 final passes. Um in, I think it was in August, we were like, right, we're nearly there. And so then I went through and did all the screenshots, checked the checked various bits and pieces. So there was a certain set of things that I would check and I was, I was responsible for, and especially doing some of the, the technical checks of everything, because I was already in the ID poking around with it. She was putting it through Grammarly, making sure that it made sense. She was checking for consistency and making sure that the book as a whole made a sense, because I was like hopping around all over the place. And she's like, no, Trish, like, you, you can't talk about this here because you haven't talked about it here yet. And I was like, oh, well, you saw all of that stuff out and I'll just like put all of my knowledge in lumps on the page. That's really fascinating. So it's sort of a mixture of kind of like pair programming style, but like writing books, but then also like each of you doing stuff on your own. Um, I really liked uh, the sort of cooperative thing that you actually sort of are explicit about in the book in a way where it's like you're the kind of 
expert who's almost kind of like got this weakness of having forgotten what it's like to be a beginner. Whereas, right. whereas, whereas, you know, Helen is sort of like not a beginner, obviously not, not, but, but, you know, sort of newer to it as it were. And so you have like Helen's hints and Trisha's tips and, and this sort of like, you know, one, one is kind of sort of like, you know, if, if you're, if you're new to, to IntelliJ idea, you'll be like, Oh, there's, there's someone like me. It's like Helen. And then if you're, if you're a true expert, you're like, ah, there's like, I'm looking for those like sort of nuggets of gold from the person who like really knows it inside out. And like to the point where you, your fingers know, but you don't anymore. Right. Um, which is right. just, just fascinating. Um, the, um, the last question that I always save on the podcast, if the guest is a lean pub author is um, if there was one, magical feature we could build for you on lean pub or if there was something that had you shaking your fist and shouting at the computer over and over again that sucked about lean pub that we could fix for you is there anything you can think of that you would ask us to do um i so the process we used is we were using ascii doctor and we were like we did our we did the bring your own book thing and then we did start with the we did start with the lean pub process but in the end, we were so comfortable doing stuff with IntelliJ Idea, and we had this um, ASCII Doctor uh, build pipeline that we were using. So we were like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So we didn't use a lot of the LeanPub stuff, but if there was one thing that I would really, really love from LeanPub, it is, and I'm sure you get this a lot, a physical book. I just really want a physical copy of my book. <laughs> Uh, yes, we do get that. Um, actually, just recently, um, we did launch something called LeanPub Services, which is so it's 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 a few hundred bucks, but it's basically a, like click a button and we'll make a print book for you and get it on Amazon. Oh, um, I didn't we'll, know about that. Yeah, and we'll do the work. Um, and um, we were very sort of lean pub wall of text style kind of explaining it, but it's basically like, yes, of course, you could go on Kindle, right? Direct publishing and do it yourself. Yeah. But if you don't want to think about it, if you don't want to think about it, you don't want to learn about it, you don't have to anything to do with it at all. I just want to click a button and LeanPub will make a print book for me. We actually do do that now. Um, I'm so pleased I came on this interview. I have learned something very important. Like yesterday, <laughs> I, I did a podcast with Josh Long, who's also done a, a LeanPub and KDP book. And um, and I was talking to him about, like, I just really want a physical copy. He's like, just do the KDP thing. It's fine. Like, the, the build pipeline that we've got, like, will work for you. And I was like, I just can't be bothered. It just seemed like loads of hassle. Um, yeah, and that's, that's, that's what we're sort of like, you know, the thing is like, you know, it's part, partly, you know, it's, it's, you know, partly our sort of programming roots or whatever, but like, you know, if we know the process, why should everyone else have to learn it? Like, you know, right. don't, don't repeat yourself, um, as it were. And like, as a kind of book publishing community, like, you know, then this is not, by the way, we didn't invent this idea of like, <laughs> click a button and pay some money to have people produce a book for you. <laughs> but like, right. but, but we are finally kind of offering that. And again, it is, it is because so many of our authors, like, you know, you put so much work into it, but what really, what, what the author should be doing is, is, is writing. If they're into it, they should also be formatting. Um, nice. uh, but the book production side is, is not something that the an author should be concerned about again we didn't invent that idea um but but anyway so we we do we do have we do have the kind of expensive magic button now i'm happy with an expensive magic button but like there's sometimes when money is just worth more than time <laughs> you'll like our copy on our page where we explain it because that's basically exactly what we say um right. Well, uh, Trisha, thank you very much um, for taking the time to be on the podcast today and for such a which such a great conversation. And thanks very much for using LeanPub as the platform uh, for your ebook. Thank you very much for having me. And I just thank you, LeanPub, because like I would never have done this without LeanPub. It's fantastic. Thanks. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.